Friends, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 18. Last week, of course, we were in 2 Kings 17. We're in the very next chapter in chapter 18. And while you're turning there in your Bibles, I know there's been a lot of online chatter about my coffee mug. People want to know why it's here and what's in it. Is it coffee that's gone cold? Is it water? Is it just a prop? Well, I thought it should have been obvious to you, but it's where I keep my M&Ms. Now, these are really good. Um, to our kids that are watching, there might be different things in my coffee mug every single week. So while you're watching the service, you remember what's in my coffee mug. And when I see you guys again, I want you to tell me what you saw in the mug. That way, I know your parents have been tuning into worship because you've seen what's in my mug and you can tell me. That's my way of taking attendance. So let me know when we see each other again what you saw in my coffee mug each week. Now, I'm going to pray for us and we're going to jump into the passage. Let's do that. Heavenly Father, we love you. We love seeing you on Palm Sunday in your glory, even if it's fleeting for today. And the crowds will cry very shortly, crucify him. You appear to us glorious on a colt, riding on a donkey into the city, being hailed and celebrated by all. That is our heart's longing. That's the greatest need of the world. And I pray we would see you as king today and you would shine brightly in our hearts. Do this, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, we're in 2 Kings 18 today. We remember that last week in 17, we saw the northern kingdom fall to Assyria. So the northern kingdom had split off from Judah. They lived for about 200 years indulging in sin and idolatry. And God said, because of your sin, I'm sending the then world superpower Assyria to come to defeat Israel, and to exile her people out of the land of Samaria. Now we hear in the very next chapter, chapter 18, in the south, that the kingdom of Judah is still holding out against Assyria. God blesses Judah with a godly, Christ-like king the likes of which we haven't seen since King David, the likes of which we won't see again in our Bibles until King Jesus comes. This is a very special king, and his name is Hezekiah. Now, when the Bible gives an introduction like that to a person, it means the rest of us are supposed to sit up and take notice of what God is doing through our Christian brother Hezekiah and what we can learn from him as we study this passage. He's going to show us, Hezekiah will show us, opposite of Israel's example that we saw last week in the last chapter, what it means to let go of sin take holds of righteousness in God's presence to be used by God's power. That sentence is going to reappear. It's the four parts of our sermon today. We're going to see letting go of sin and taking hold of righteousness and what it means to do that in God's presence and what it means then to be used by God's power as such an instrument. You'll see that as we walk through our passage today. 
So let's start with the first one, letting go of sin. And I see that in verses 3 and 4. Look at this. And he, that is Hezekiah, did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David his father had done. He removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah. And he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it. It was called Nehushtan. You see those words there? He removed, he broke, he cut, he broke. You've got this fourfold repetition of a violent removal of sinful snares and temptations. Now, if you were to read the books of Kings cover to cover, you're lulled into thinking that these high places, that these Asherah poles are normal. Everybody does it. Nobody raises an eyebrow, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. They have just become part of Israel's and Judah's landscape, and no one is scandalized by those sins. In fact, if you were to live in 21st century America today, as we do, we have our own litany and list of sins that we practice that just become part of the landscape of our lives. Everybody does them. Nobody raises an eyebrow. Christians look exactly like non-Christians when it comes to these sins. So it is startling when somebody like Hezekiah bursts onto the scene, he calls sin, sin, and he just starts breaking stuff, tearing it down, ripping it out, taking sin seriously. Did you see what Hezekiah broke in verse 4? Look at that. It was the bronze serpent that Moses had made in the wilderness during the time of the Exodus. Now, if you have this timeline in your mind, you know that the time of the Exodus was 1450 B.C. And we are now living in the 700s B.C. when Israel falls to Assyria, which means the serpent has been around for 700 years. That's unbelievable. Smashing the bronze serpent broke a 700-year idolatrous addiction. I get intimidated by sins that have been in my life for days or weeks or months or years. Imagine facing century-old sins. Sins that have well-worn paths that lead to them. Sins that have a whole culture built around them, that have a population defending them and thinking there's nothing really wrong with them, that they can continue indulging in them all the while still trying to practice true faith. And Hezekiah says, no way, it can't be done, not on my watch. And so Hezekiah, and as we're going to see in a moment, really God in Hezekiah, makes short work of a long problem. It's better to kill a sin that is going to make people angry or frustrated or confused than let that sin linger just one more day. It's been around for 700 years. 
No one has cared to touch it, even godly kings before Hezekiah. And Hezekiah says, 700 years and not a day more. It is time to mortify this sin. That's incredible to watch. We need voices in our life who will wake us from our sinful slumber and allow us to recognize the sins that are at hand. They'll shake us up towards God and His righteousness. One of those voices for us is Hezekiah, to watch him do these things in the kingdom of Judah. Another voice for us is the Puritan John Owen. Of course, I have to mention John Owen's book, The Mortification of Sin, And this is the way he talks in that book. He says, Do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it whilst you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Sin doesn't nibble. It devours. It doesn't singe. It burns. It doesn't just distract. It can render us completely useless in the kingdom of God. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Find someone who will speak those words into your life and make them a companion in your Christian walk. We need voices who take sin seriously. So Hezekiah Let's go, rips out, breaks down sin. And then secondly, he takes hold of righteousness. And we see that in verses 5 and 6. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments of the Lord that the Lord had commanded to Moses. So the Christian life is not just a bunch of don'ts. It's not just a list of stuff that we're supposed to avoid. It is a wide open space of what to do of how to be fully human once again in the glorious presence of God. We had heard back in the last section this fourfold repetition of breaking down, cutting out, removing sins in our life. Now that's matched by a fourfold repetition of picking up, putting on, building what is good. He says, trusted, held fast, did not depart, kept all of these lush words surrounding righteousness. Righteousness is beautiful. Righteousness is attractive. Righteousness done in God's presence is contagious for those who see it and behold it. Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, says, he calls us oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord for the display of His splendor. The psalmist says the righteous are like well-watered, ever-bearing trees. The prophet Daniel says the regenerate, they shine like stars. 
Jesus says when people see the good works of believers, when they observe them, I mean, we're so used to seeing this kind of canned moralism that's off-putting to people, this self-righteousness that pushes our neighbors away. It's surprising to hear Jesus say, when people see true righteousness, they see your good deeds and they glorify your Father who is in heaven. Something is attractive about the righteousness they see in a believer and they say, I want to know the God that stands behind this person. Righteousness is beautiful because God is beautiful and righteousness is becoming like God. Now I'm using the sermon points to let go of sin and take hold of righteousness But of course, what we're talking about in those two things is repentance and faith, the twofold step of every believer. By God's grace and power, we are fleeing from sin daily in repentance, and we are running towards God and His promises in faith. Verse 5 says that Hezekiah trusted in the Lord. That's faith. Hezekiah's journey towards righteousness was by faith in God. Every believer, every day, are exercising these God-given muscles to repent of our sin, turn around and leave it, and move towards God and His precious promises by faith. Repent and believe, repent and believe. It's how we're converted and it's how we're sanctified, how God makes us into the image of himself. So we talked about letting go of sin and we talked about taking hold of righteousness. Now we're going to talk about doing that in God's presence and then to be used by God's power. So let's talk about doing this in God's presence. You know, really, this is not a sermon about Hezekiah. This is a sermon about God. God is everywhere in these verses. Verse 5, he trusted in the Lord. Verse 6, he held fast to the Lord. Verse 7, the Lord was with him. Everywhere Hezekiah turns in his journey of repentance and faith, there's the Lord. He's present, he's moving, he's convicting, he's abiding, he is everywhere in this process of sanctification. Now, Christian, you and I know this even better than Hezekiah. We know this better than any Old Testament forebearer of our faith. We know this side of Easter that when Christ claims us as one of his own, he unites himself to us. We have fellowship with him. We are in Christ. We are welcomed into communion with the Trinity. This is what we're talking about every Wednesday in our Lent book study, that we are now present with the Father, Son, and Spirit, Blessed Trinity. The aim of righteousness doesn't have its focal point on sin, less sin, removing sin, getting rid of sin. That's part of it, but that's not the point in and of itself. If that was, it would be empty. The focal point of righteousness What makes it so beautiful and glorious to behold is that it's not sin, but more of God himself, making room in our hearts for God. 
Later in John Owen's book, Mortification of Sin, I dabbled in it to get that quote, and then I just ended up reading the whole thing once again. He warns those who are fighting sin with the wrong motivations. Now, this insight is worth the price of the book. So if you need to pause this video and get on Amazon Prime and order Mortification of Sin by John Owen, please do that. It'll arrive on Amazon Prime in two months or so. But Owen says, saints fighting sin solely, I mean, this is what they're doing, solely for the fear of men in shame and the fear of God in hell are on dangerous grounds. They're using law weapons and not gospel weapons to fight sin. If our fight against sin is solely based in fear, motivated and animated by fear, we are using law weapons and not gospel weapons to fight our sin. Meanwhile, gospel weapons abound. There are many gospel weapons that God gives us, not least of which is this sweet communion with God in Trinity. It's being filled with the fullness of God. It's having lives that are hidden with Christ. It's what Paul calls in Galatians, being in step with the Spirit as we walk with Him. It's a growing disgust of sin as sin and a growing constraint by the love of Christ. These are gospel weapons for us to fight sin in our regenerate state. If we are pursuing so-called holiness in a vacuum apart from the precious presence of God, like we've reduced our fight with sin to being afraid that God will inflict us with pain or afraid that we're going to get caught, those are the only things that motivate us, John Owen warns, know that this reserve will not long hold out. If thy lust has driven thee from stronger gospel forts, it will speedily prevail against this also. Do not suppose that such considerations will deliver thee when thou hast voluntarily given up to thine enemy those helps and means of preservation which have a thousand times their strength. Why would we ever trade the gospel motivation of more of God that has a thousand times the strength of a law's motivation of not getting caught is <laughs> not a fair trade. That reserve won't hold out and we're doomed in our life of sanctification. Hezekiah takes refuge in stronger gospel forts in the very presence of God in this fight and in this glorious pursuit of more of Him. We let go of sin. We take hold of righteousness. All of this is done in God's presence so that finally we might be used by God. Look at our passage in verses 7 and 8. And the Lord was with him. Wherever he went, he prospered. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. He struck down the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory from watchtower to fortified city. 
I don't think it's a coincidence that cutting out sin and taking hold of righteousness gave way to prosperous kingdom work. I mean, I think we're meant to see in our passage the direct connection between the two, that God starts his gospel work in our hearts, that we flee sin, that we trust him by faith. And then that is going to lead to God using us in his kingdom, bearing good gospel fruit. Now, of course, God is not some genie who produces on our demand. We can't expect that if we have some victory over a certain sin, that he owes it to us to use us in his kingdom. But clearly, it's being shown to us that those two things are related. And we see that in several other places in Scripture, like Psalm 1 that we keep mentioning which says, blessed is the man who does not walk or stand or sit. He doesn't abide with sinners and scoffers. It says in verse 3, in all that he does, he prospers. That sounds like Hezekiah. Or even more clearly, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 20 and 21. Now in a great house... There are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also wood and clay, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Now tell me, tell me, dear Christian. Is there a sweeter phrase for you today than to know that you might be useful to the master? Useful to the master. That in his hands, by his power at work in us through Christ, he might use us like in big ways or in small ways, in public ways or in private ways, when he surveys his kingdom and the work that he is doing in the world and he says, I have use of saints and he sees you as a son or daughter abiding in him, he says, I'll take this one. This one is useful to the master to do my work. How precious and glorious that is. God made Hezekiah such a man, strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. He resisted the Assyrians, which Israel couldn't do with more people and manpower and resources and defenses. What Israel couldn't do, Hezekiah was able to do in the Lord and turn around and smash the Philistines that had dogged the kingdom of Judah to this day. You can go to the British Museum in London and you can go to the ancient Near East section and you can see an Assyrian prism where they record their history and there it is in black and white. Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, admits he could not take Jerusalem. He laid siege to it. He fought against it. He could not take that city. It was in God's hands. That is a testament today to what God can do through a man wholly devoted to him. What can he do? What can he do, dear believer, through you and through I 
in these days, seizing this time, even in these dark days of virus and quarantine, if more and more we are letting go of the sin that so easily entangles and more and more grabbing a hold of righteousness, which is to say grabbing a hold of God in His presence, what will He do through us by His power in such a time as this? I cannot wait to see the marvelous ways. He already has been doing this, and he will do this through believers in him. Now, I want to close with this beautiful thought of Christ. Of course, Hezekiah was God's king used to cleanse a nation. But on this Palm Sunday, our eyes are on Jesus, the King of Kings, God's king to cleanse a new and a spiritual nation. Jesus himself cut down sin. When he resisted every temptation, when he vanquished every demon, when he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey and entered the temple, his father's house, and cleansed it from the money changers, he cut down sin. And Jesus himself, like Hezekiah, took hold of righteousness in his perfect life, in his guiltless death, in the imputed righteousness that he earned, that he now dispenses to those who believe he took hold of righteousness. And Jesus did all of this in God's presence to be used by God's power in perfect, abiding unity with his heavenly Father. This week, we are going to observe Good Friday, the crucifixion of Jesus, where Jesus' death saves us from the penalty of sin and its terrors. And then we're going to celebrate on Easter Sunday His resurrection in which by His life and His ascension and His intercession before His Father, He now frees us not only from the penalty of sin, but also the power of sin that inflicts its terrors on our life. That is the victory that the King of Kings has won. Indeed. Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Let's pray together. Blessed are you, King of kings. Will you do this work in us? Will you give us a fresh vision of our sin as sin that we would cut it out root it from our lives, and free our hearts to seize you, the pearl of great price for whom we will sell everything and with great joy know you, abide in you, fellowship with you, love you, be enamored by you. Let us do this in your presence. And let us do this in such a way that you, by your grace and power, will make us useful to the Master, ready to be used by you for every good work in our households and in our families and in our neighborhoods and in our church and in our watching world. Make us useful to the Master. We pray in Jesus' reigning and triumphant name. Amen. Now, friends, I want to give you that same benediction. 
If you are in Christ, if you are united to Christ, then the, the blessings and the promises that are Christ's are yours because your life is hidden with Christ and Christ is in God's. And so I say to you, believer, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed are you, believer, who comes in the name of the Lord. Amen.